0: This is Charles Coughlin and you're listening to Songscapes, a production of Sustained Music and Nature. This is the title track from Good at Losing Everything, Ghost of Paul Revere's latest release. My guest today, Griffin Sherry, tells us how the band found its sound.
1: The relationship between the three core members of the band, I mean, Max, Sean and I have known each other since we were about three years old, so it's been a long time. Um, But when we started playing music together, we really couldn't figure out what type of music we were playing because none of us kind of grew up in the bluegrass fashion, um, but we all kind of gravitated towards those instruments. So we found ourselves playing, you know, Led Zeppelin and Radiohead songs on a banjo, a bass and acoustic guitar. And uh, we started calling ourselves holler folk to um, kind of as both um, for like the raucous nature of the shows, but also as a callback to communal music, field hollers and. And what it meant to sing uh, with a group of people, specifically a room, because a lot of those early shows were us without PA systems and just a bar full of people singing along to the song. So that's kind of where our roots came from. So we just decided to make our own genre and call it Holler Folk. and, And it's stuck with us now for nine years, coming on 10 years. So.
0: So I want to get to your influences because I'm fascinated by the music you listen to and the fact that you're actually playing instruments that were inspired by these guys. And yet you're not playing the same instruments that these guys are playing. So we'll get to that, but I'm curious. So now that you've established this genre, do you feel Mm -hmm. like you guys are sort of on your own with this genre? Like you are the unique entrance to this?
1: I think so. I think that we, uh, the one nice thing about establishing your own genre is that you don't necessarily have to be beholden to it, which I really like. I've always seen this more kind of akin to uh, what the band was doing, um, wherein like the music isn't necessarily constrained by um, a specific style of music. It just kind of is what the song demands. And for us, that's like a big thing is the song is the dictator of of anything we're going to put on top of it or subtract from it um as far as performance and and studio goes so i think that it's it's interesting i've seen more bands kind of pop up um and i've seen a couple bands call themselves holler folk since we started doing that and back when you could like list your own genre on itunes when you in when you put in a song for an mp3 but um it's i think in general the spirit of that idea and and just kind of the notion of holler folk um, kind of still lives in in the band itself
0: it, it It's definitely kind of our spirit animal, but you know, you talk about Radiohead, yeah, and you talk about the band, and I know you're a big Zeppelin and Pink Floyd guy, yeah, and yet Robbie Robertson, Johnny Greenwood, Ed O'Brien, David Gilmore, Jimmy Page, maybe Jimmy Page will take that away, but like I don't remember the last time that I've seen Johnny Greenwood pick up an acoustic guitar or a banjo. And yet here you guys are inspired by this music. And, you know, I mean, what do we have like acoustic guitar and fake plastic trees? (laughs) Like Radiohead is not that kind of band. So how how does this, how does this work for you in terms of serving the song? Well, I think that um, Mm -hmm.
1: we, we run into this issue. We run into an issue when we try to like, when we decide what, what songs we're going to cover or do during performances and stuff. Um, For me, a big, but um, to put my stamp of approval on it, it has to we have to in, reinterpret a song in a way that uh, really our voices can live inside of it and our instrumentation can live inside of it. So at that point, you know, I think that even though we we idolize all of those guys and, and, and specifically me as a guitar player, I always wanted to be in the beginning when I started to play guitar. You know, the first guitar I got was a Stratocaster. And like when I was a teenager, I wanted to be um david gilmore and i wanted to be jimmy page i wanted to play that kind of guitar but when i bought an acoustic guitar for the first time that's when all of a sudden i kind of found my voice and i also happened to like that's i was really listening to uh i mean i was listening to a lot of zeppelin three at that point too so those kind of like those songs do live within and especially with the band like a lot of those songs there there are acoustic elements to those songs but i just found that i um my presence as a songwriter and as a performer just lived within an acoustic guitar and not within an electric one, but the songs itself, I mean, if, if I can <laughs> perform it and convincingly, then it died for me, it doesn't matter what instrument I'm playing it on. It could be, you know, it could be a song for, well, it's not going to be a song for sousaphone, but you know, you get my point.
0: So basically the Bronnie, your stomp was the precursor to holler roots is what oh, you're For sure. Saying.
1: Oh, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh all, yes, that, I mean that record is so
0: incredible. But so you burned the groove offside to a Led Zeppelin three a few times. A couple times, yeah. a couple
1: times. I have a couple. Yeah. I have a couple of couple of them upstairs in the vinyl collection. I mean, most of my favorite records, I have a, a bunch of versions of this because you go through them. But yeah, that's yeah. Cool. No, that that um, that side of the record. I mean, and even like, I mean, going to California was a huge song for me too. It's the Led Zeppelin four. Led Zeppelin four is kind of like this. Um, you know, I think that people. I wonder if people kind of dismiss it because it's got "Stairway" on it. It's got a lot of big songs, but man, does that span a whole universe as far as content and creative energy. It's just—it's everything from you know soft acoustic songs to these big bombastic rock opera esque songs. And, and knowing that a band, uh, I kind of look at music. It for me, it doesn't—it it doesn't shake that Led Zeppelin is still Led Zeppelin um, because they can present all of these different styles uh, and kind of tastes of music to their audience. Um, For me, that's just who they are. That's their identity. And some bands, some bands fit a very specific niche, you know, like some bands are the sex pistols and some bands are the talking heads and some bands uh, just don't have a voice that's as distinct, but it's still, you know, in the case of like Zeppelin, it's still very distinctly
0: Zeppelin, which is cool. Battle of Evermore true. is one of the most underrated Led Zeppelin songs of all time so I hear you and, and go ahead I was gonna say you know what got me
1: into Battle Evermore um I was I was like a voracious reader as a kid and I'm a huge Tolkien fan so like once I learned at like 10 that Led Zeppelin had references like sprinkled into their songs about Lord of the Rings I was on top of it uh and meant yeah that like Led Zeppelin 4, and Dark Side of the Moon are probably like, you know, not only my Desert Island records, but like also like the most formative records, I think, outside of maybe the Sun, uh, the Sun Studio sessions for Elvis, like the, the it was 54, 56. Um, like besides that record, those two records, I think, defined what I would wanted to do when I started writing music because they were so influential for me as a kid. And I found them at like eight or nine. My dad just happened to be like, you should listen to this. And I was like, okay, great. Because that's yeah. when like popular music when I was a kid was like chumba you know? So I was very disconnected and, and and found a lot of stuff specifically from the sixties and seventies that I fell in love with
0: and only listened to. I actually saw John Paul Jones warm up for King Crimson and he did a cover of that's the way his own song oh. where he sang the song, which was, which was that's extremely awesome. cool. Now, you guys, or you yourself, yeah. you've been doing a lot of covers. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you choose the covers you choose and, and how you distribute those covers?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've always, so as um, as a band, we started, our first gigs were, were, were bar gigs. You know, they were three and a half hour long bar gigs. So we would have to, and as we started to write music, you know, maybe we had, when we started as a band, we had kind of, before we did our first show, maybe written like five or six songs together. Um, But we still had to fill these hours of time. So we just started to learn songs and songs and songs. And I think that it's a great exercise for any musician or guitar player or singer to try to learn as many uh, cover songs as you can, because it it helps kind of establish um, a vocabulary that you can use in your own work. And for me, I mean, I have there's so many songs um, that I absolutely adore but not all of them fit my voice. And I think there's a process in which, you know, I just will go through and learn a song and then I'll play it and then I'll record myself and listen to it and see if, um, see if it actually, if me singing, it actually says something. Um, and if it doesn't, then, you know, I won't, I won't put it out, but if it does, then I pursue it a little bit more. And it's kind of a, a fun game about um, trying to figure out how I can reinterpret um, someone else's words and someone else's melody into, uh, you know, so it feels comfortable and, and authentic in my own voice. Like I just did, uh, I've just seen a face. Um,
0: I saw that. It's great. Which
1: thanks. And it was, and it was one of those things where um, we were talking about, oh, it's Valentine's day. Like what are your favorite love songs? And it's always been one of my favorites. And I was like, I would always, it always feels pretty fast to me. And I also I was wondering what would it sound like in an open tuning? So I just kind of taught myself the song in an open tuning and, and found that, I re- it really resonated with me as a performer.
0: I want to talk a little bit about your relationship to your audience because okay. you, you've got the ghost stories behind the songs thing that you do on mm-hmm. social. And yep. I wanted to get you to talk about what's sort of behind your creativity, but what's also behind your relationship with the audience in explaining your creativity, which is an art unto itself.
1: Yeah. Well, um, for, you know, for me, and I think for the, I can speak for the boys as well in, in this, um, in this idea is that we've always been hyper connected to our audience. You know, it started as our friends and family. And then, and then all of a sudden we, strangers, co- strangers would come to the shows, but they would come to multiple shows. And then we get to know their names and then we get to know more about them. And all of a sudden, you know, we know members of their family and we know their kids and it's like all, and so we had we've had this kind of like extreme grassroots nature to our own band for so long that I think that it was easy now that we're kind of uh, the next step up um, for us, it it would seem disingenuous to like not try to maintain that relationship as far as the openness to us personally and our creativity. Um, So, you know, the, the aim is to just, give as much out as possible. It's, it's exhausting, but it's, I think it's really worth it because I I want people to know that, you know, the music that we're making, it it truly is like the essence of, of us and our friendship and, and what we truly care about. And we want to let people in because at a certain point, you know, like when people go to shows, like, at least for me personally, when I go to a show, any show that I've had some type of like personal connection with, I just will always remember. It just resonates really hard. So for us, you know, we try to do that for, you know, every audience that we can play in front of.
0: And I think this friend, go ahead, Griffin.
1: I was going to say, and I think that that that's now that we've, are struggling with being socially distant because we're a band that played 200 and 200 to 250 shows a year. You know, now that we're not allowed to play shows, I think that, we've that we've put poured that energy into energy into just
0: creating content yeah we'll talk COVID because you can't do a (laughs) podcast these days without COVID. but i wanna i wanna stay with something happier for the minute which is you guys as you said you've known each other since you were three years old yeah but if i'm right about this you wrote your first song when you were 19 and when you wrote that first song you weren't in this trio yeah. So how did it evolve where you went from friends to deciding to no longer be a solo artist and have a band?
1: Well, you know, it um it's kind of a funny story. It was, uh, you know, we we were always super close. And then um, we kind of all we had a small group in high school, you know, a trio, we did a trio thing in high school just for fun. Um, and played a lot of covers. We were doing a lot of covers of dispatch and of, and of Weezer. And then, uh, we all went to college and Max and I ended up going to the same arts college and actually in Western New York, we went up to Alfred university. Um, and during college, I started singing for a band there. We got a bunch of guys together and Max focused more on painting and we got back and I was still doing the solo performance stuff. And, and when I had started writing solo acoustic stuff, the, um, the idea came that, uh, the the group was called the group of just myself was called Griffin, Sherry and the ghost of Paul Revere. Cause the idea was that you know, I never really felt, I never really felt like I was presenting. I always felt that was, there was another entity on stage with me when I was kind of performing. Cause I didn't think that I had all of that was coming from, from me. I always felt like there had to be some other force behind it. So that was the idea of the ghost of Paul Revere was like, um, it could be a rotating band of anybody. Um, but it also was kind of this idea of music itself and, and performance itself is kind of an out of body experience. And then when we got back to Maine, I was doing those bar shows and I was playing on my own for three hours or so, a little bit more and making like 50 bucks and, and the, we would get free beer. So Max and Sean would always come to the shows and one day we, I, they just, I just would be like, Hey, you want to sing a couple songs? You get free beer for the night. And and literally over a year that turned into well max had had a banjo for a couple years and sean had played bass a long time ago and so we got sean a new bass and we're like let's just try this as you know a band and see how it goes for a full show and and
0: we did it once and we haven't stopped since back in a minute with more Griffin sherry and check out more from ghost of paul revere at patreon.com slash ghost of paul revere I'm Betsy and I'm Harrison. We're
1: the co-founders of Sustained Music and Nature. Sustain is a nonprofit that makes music a force for nature. By tapping into the emotional power of music and cultural sway of artists, we engage new audiences with their environment.
0: Check out Sustained Music and Nature on social media to see our public land music videos and learn about upcoming concerts in the great outdoors. Welcome back to Songscapes. My guest, Rip and Sherry of Ghost of Paul Revere, has always felt the presence of ghosts. If yeah,
1: I grew up in a haunted house as well, so it's. <laughs> but old New England houses, man, you know, they feel like that ghosts are a dime a dozen. But Ghost Ghostland was my first. Ghostland was the first song, um, one of the first songs I ever wrote, but also like the first song where I wrote it and I, I and I I didn't have to justify its existence, if that makes any sense. You know, I think that yeah. sometimes you create things and you're like, well, um, why did I do this? You know? And, and, and for that, it was so instantaneous. It was just kind of like, this is, I've, I found what I'd like to do, um, which is a pretty rare thing. Um, or I found something that gives me complete joy and, and, and allows me to express these feelings that I can't necessarily say out loud or you know, I would stumble over normally if I was trying to have, say it in a conversation. Um, but songwriting allowed me to f- kind of find that voice and present it to the world. It's a very cathartic thing for me as a writer. Um, which, it, which it isn't for a lot of writers, for a lot of songwriters, but for me, it always has come from a place of of real catharsis.
0: So there is an actual spiritual connection. It sounds like in your in your work. So is it is there a ghost? Are there a series of ghosts? <laughs> Um, you know,
1: I, the, uh, I think that I would say probably is, I would say a series of ghosts is a great way to describe it. I, you know, that, um, it's, it's trying to, I think that writing music in general is trying to kind of corporealize, um, something that is intangible, right? It's like, you're trying to describe sentiments or feelings or, you know, uh, anything that, that doesn't isn't, doesn't quite exist in the physical world. I mean, that's, that's really what songwriting is. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, if you, and in that sense, you're always kind of pulling from ghosts of your own life or other people's lives, you know, um, I do enjoy writing. I do enjoy writing from like a, uh, a historical, um, vein as well. So I think that there's a lot of stories in general, stories in general is kind of,
0: they exist as, and they exist as ghosts throughout history, I guess. And a lot of those stories were behind your 2019 album, good at losing everything. And then yeah. you're supposed to get on a plane and go to Scandinavia, I believe. And then COVID. So what's then your, COVID. what's your shit show COVID story? Yeah. I'm sure for you, it was, and continues to be a real ordeal. It is, you know, yeah, and it's the truth. I mean, we, uh,
1: I was just saying it today. I think this weekend is, is a year um, to the day that we played our last normal show in front of people. And then the day before um, they locked down the borders, uh, we were supposed to fly to Norway for a six week European tour. And, and since then, everything got everything stopped. And it was it was how do you as a band who solely depends on live performances kind of to to make um, our way in the world. Uh, how do you fundamentally kind of switch gears and, and, and pivot to make this new kind of forced period productive. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, it's been stressful. It's been crazy, but we've really been trying our hardest to just, just work as hard as we possibly can every day and, and take chances, do things like we were, you know, we were, we were kind of out there, uh, in front of the, like doing shows at drive in movie theaters. And, and we did less we than fif- 15 or 16 of them this summer and, and, um, just anything we could to, you know, jumping on Patreon and, and, and really getting into, um, immediately after it started doing, um, performances on the web and, and really just trying to be ahead of that wave crest. Cause I, we also knew that was going to happen. It was, you know, when the beginning of the COVID stuff, it was like, let's get on the internet. Let's start doing live shows. We'll get donations. We'll do this. We'll do that. And and, and I kind of was looking at it and I was like, well, you know, by May, everyone's going to be tired of sitting in front of their computer. And like, how are we going to, what's the next step? And then sure, sure it was, you know, that's donations slowed down and and web shows got less and less attended. And then it was like, okay, how can we do a safe socially distant show? Let's try it. And it was the drive-in shows and, and it's been kind of like every every month and every week has been a new thing where it's like, cause we don't know, no idea when this is going to end. You know, we're hopeful that 2022 is going to see things back to relative normalness. But, you know, saying that now I, we had hoped in May that we were still going to do our festival in August. Like that was still planned. Um, but it was uh, it's, it's been an interesting, it's been an interesting kind of juggling act to figure out how, you know how to exist as a, as a touring musician in the era of COVID. It's 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 kind of an unanswerable question. But so we are surviving, though. COVID- so.
0: Yeah, and and um, <laughs> I give you a lot of credit for your resourcefulness because as That's a nice. musician and as a band, it affects your livelihood and it affects your creativity. And to your point about people going outside, you guys are from Maine. You yep. are an avid fisherman. You're all environmentalists. Can you talk about how Maine uh, has affected your life, how it's affected your music, how it's affected your relationship, and maybe even how it's affected your creativity during COVID?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, I think in general, in general, it probably helped us during COVID because Maine tends to be kind of an isolationist state. Um, we're used to being on our own up here and, and, and um, I, I could never, I could never kind of, I went to New York for, for school, but I could never really drum up the courage to ever leave the state because I just love it too much. It's, there's something about it. It's, it's elemental, but it's also brutal and, and can be really harsh. We can have really hot summers and desperately cold winters and the storms can be really bad. But I think that breeds kind of an earnestness in all its people um, that everybody, that, and, and Luckily for us, you know our, the a big part of our fan base is here in the state and and all of those people um would give you the shirt off their back without any any questions asked you know that's just the kind of people that are up here and and because of that, you know we could lean we could we could lean back on our community a little bit during these times um and they really helped us out and they were really understanding and I think that you know we certainly as everybody did had a lot of problems in the beginning with with people wanting to uh, kind of go against what the science was saying and what um, the health officials were saying, and and luckily Maine for a very long time had we stayed really safe and people were really smart, and and I think it's because we're used to doing things on our own. So it's so when when things kind of shut down, um, they didn't necessarily shut down a ton more than they had for us, you know, in general. Um, but and you know having such a great, incredible fan base here in Maine allowed us to stay in the state during the summer and still have shows and have them all be sold out and, and well attended. Um, because you know, it's, it, it was a way to bring our community together. And I think at times people desperately needed to be brought together, even if they were six feet apart.
0: So there are bands that are really identified by their geographical destination and fish is always Vermont and fish are connected. Yep. You mentioned the band, the band in upstate New York, the Woodstock mm-hmm. area. There's obviously the Seattle uh, groups like Pearl Jam and Nirvana. How has yeah. Maine actually entered into your music? I know that's a very metaphysical yeah. question, but how are we hearing Maine in your music? Um, well, I think that it's
1: an it's definitely an aesthetic thing. Um you know we have our kind of own brand of of bluegrass and folk up here we kind of have our own little bubbles of a lot of different types of music up here because it portland is this is kind of this untapped wealth of musicality that's really cool i mean we were lucky enough to come into an incredible scene uh in like 2000 or 2010 2011 of all these great bands playing a lot of a lot of people doing really cool things you know big bands doing cover doing covers with local local acts and like just big events and that was but it was all for the community so there's i think that that sense of like i was saying that sense of community is a big part of of what maine has given us as a band um and i think that um we might have tried if we are from someone else somewhere else we might have not uh, think about a good way to word this one uh we wouldn't have been as stubborn i think as sticking to our guns with uh maybe the instruments we chose or the fact that we were kind of going to be uncompromising about the type of music we wanted to play and not limit it to you know it could have been easy to to make our first record and then be like okay people really like you know the the Dunky uh banjo plucking Uh, party music like let's stick with that and it was like no we want to write songs with substance and we want to write songs that are complex melodically and 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 sometimes challenging musically um for listeners um and we don't we don't care if you know we're not going to follow the tide of you know that's that's coming in and out as far as musicality goes and i think that has a big um that resonates a lot with with main people in general um but i mean and I feel like we're kind of ambassadors for our state as well. Cause it, as you travel around the country, it doesn't seem like a lot of people know much about us. It's it's we're considered so far away from everything. Um, that like I've had people ask if we have running water and electricity, like that kind of <laughs> stuff. And it's like, yeah, you know, but there are, there are millions and millions of acres that are untouched in the state. Um, and, uh, that's a really important thing. I think to all of us who live here, um, so it's it's interesting to kind of go out and be the ambassadors. And, and um, I think the biggest main thing that we've put out in the world would be uh, the Ballad of the 20th Maine, um, which is a song I wrote about, uh, you know, this moment in the Battle of Gettysburg that like kind of um, helped define the Civil War and happened to be because of a bunch of guys from Maine. And, and it's since become the official Maine State Ballad. And it's a lot of fun to bring it, especially south of the Mason-Dixon and sing along with Southerners and talk to Southerners about the kind of the heritage behind the song and like their heritage that they bring to shows and stuff. And it goes over surprisingly well. We were terrified to play it down there at first, but the first place we ever played it was Johnson city, Tennessee. And we, and immediately, you're being modest. Played, we immediately played the night they drove old Dixie down right afterwards.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's okay. They probably work well together, but you're yeah, being do. modest The house of representatives. Actually, it wasn't like, not a big deal. There was a vote taken in the government to identify that song as the state ballot of Maine. Correct?
1: Unanimously, yeah, voted for um, in the Senate and in the House, and then signed into law by the governor.
0: It was, yeah, it I don't, was an absolute way,
1: crazy experience. It was crazy. I,
0: I don't think the <laughs> night they drove Old Dixie down has that uh, distinction in any any of the fifty states in this country. No. Although obviously Canada could could lay some claim to that song, but oh cell, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the the physical embodiment of a lot of what you're talking about, which to your point earlier, COVID got in the way. I would think is the Ghostland Festival that you guys put on, right? Yeah. Can you talk about the the festival you guys do. Yeah, it is. Um,
1: you know, unfortunately, we couldn't do it last year. We did it. We did a virtual version of it, but it's it's not quite the same. But it it is um, kind of it echoes the story of the band um, of our band very well. It was like. We kind of, we had put out our set, our first full length record and, um, the response around here was, was phenomenal. And, um, you know, it was the first big sold out show we'd ever had with, you know, people waiting to get in around the block. And it was, and, and our manager kind of was like, well, what do you guys want to do next? And, and the three of us looked at each other and we said, we want to do, we want to have our own festival. We want to just try it. So the first year we booked all local bands and it was Max Sean and I, and our manager, parking cars and setting up fencing and feeding all the bands. And we paid for everything out of pocket. I think we made $200 and had 700 people come, but like in our book, it was this incredible success. And a lot of that was based on, we had a festival that we really loved in Northern Maine called a roots acoustic, which was very much this like low budget, um, but incredibly uh, community driven um, music festival up there. And not a lot of people go to Northern Maine, um, as far as entertainment is concerned. So they're really hungry for it up there. So, um, we decided we just wanted to put on our own festival and we, we had one year and we we're like, can't wait for next year. And then of course things started to pick up and we started to get more busy with touring and stuff. And it wasn't until 2018, uh, with a little help from our venue, the, um, the bigger venue in Portland, the state theater, and with a little help from those guys, uh, we started to put it on in Portland and, and it's since grown from, you know, a couple hundred people to now it's it's about 4000 people and we do it outside in Portland and we can invite bigger bands that we really love and and our friends and, and make a full, you know, couple days out of it. And I cannot wait for the next one. I'm you know, this the if we can hopefully we can do it at the end of the summer, we can do it. And uh, uh, we get to have, you know, main bands like the Mallet Brothers, um, but also uh, Deer Tick um, we'll be playing and they're one of my favorite bands. Um, so it's this great opportunity for us to, you know, it's for a lot of ghost fans to get together and kind of celebrate the band, but also us to kind of celebrate them and, and things that we love. And that's all it is. It's just, it's kind of just a festival that we put on, um, to celebrate, you know, how lucky we are to, to still be doing this and, and where it's gotten us.
0: So let's talk about the new album for a minute. Good at losing everything. You you took some different steps. You added a few people to the mix, some songwriting, some musicians. Why'd you do that?
1: You know, um, I think it started with the last record. It started with Monarch. Uh, we had that album. We had this idea. We wanted to make it like um, uh, like Exile on Main Street. You know, we wanted to go. Live in a studio for two weeks and write a record and party and have fun and like, you know, really what happens is that like, the true story behind that in in our experience is you party for four days and then the, the soundboard dies and you've got to rethink. You've just spent a bunch of money and you have to rethink how you're going to do everything again. And but during that process, we started to really experiment with um, kind of studio production for the first time and what we could do. And I think that it, it eliminated that fear. So with this new record, we um, had never written, we never had a producer really who, who was interested in truly producing the songs, you know, being there from Jump Street and, and guiding the songs through and, and having a sonic imprint on the songs. We'd never had that. So that was kind of the new, the new challenge was like, can we work with someone Um, and are we like, what's it going to be like if, if someone from the outside kind of starts to color ghost songs, are we still going to have the same heartbeat that we've had through all these records? You know, the band is still going to, is still going to be the same. And I think it like, for me, it's one of my favorite records we've made because it, I think it really does. I think it is challenging. I think that we um i think we take some really big swings and and not nece- they don't all necessarily pan out but that's kind of part of the experience is, is like learning relearning what makes us what makes our band special you know what for people to listen to um and i think that that good losing everything was a record that was we all it was born out of really hard times for the three of us and um just as far as what was going on personally and and the loss of uh collectively a really, really close friend to cancer and, and, but we weren't talking about it. Um, and it was all of a sudden, we started writing this record and, and, and those conversations that probably should have been happening between three friends started to happen musically. Um, and it started to happen in people's lyrics and, and we started to get insight about like how people's lives were going and what was going on. It was like the, this first kind of like a reintroduction of communication for the three of us. And, and, um, yeah, it, I, we didn't plan on calling it "Good at Losing Everything." Um, I mean, I guess we, it was the title track to the to the record, so we all had liked that name, and we had planned to release it in May before you know all this stuff happened. But it seems pretty apropos now, I guess, um, to have released it in August, and and the sentiment still is the same. Is that, you know, we all get really good at losing everything before you know we kind of realize it.
0: Yeah, it's a great title and it's a great record. The next Thank time you. you gotta go full exile stones and you gotta get that <laughs> villa in France and just like Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just really got to make government,
1: the villa in France. Oh, if only. Get all of our yeah. gear stolen. Yeah.
0: I think there's other stories there we won't get <laughs> oh, into. Yeah, exactly. um, oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Hey, man. I ask I ask yeah. uh, everybody that comes on mm-hmm. to think about a song, if one comes to mind that connects you with nature in a positive way. It could be your own song, could be another song, but just something that when you are thinking of the beauty of the world and the good of it, what what comes to mind? I have been thinking about this um, all day.
1: <laughs> and, um, I, it's a really interesting question to me because I, I was at the heart of it. I have an answer and I'm not sure if it's going to be satisfying. Um, There's no
0: wrong answers here. There's no the, bad answers. Um,
1: at at the at the heart of it i think that when uh i'm thinking about you know being isolated and being in nature for me it's kind of the absence of of music um because when i think of nature in its own sense you know being being in wilderness um this that sound is in its own sense kind of its own like microcosm, microcosm of of uh worldly orchestral things you know there are so many minutiae that that happen when you're out in the woods that um i tend to never when i go out on trips uh into the wilderness i never i never tend to bring music with me because um i i hate missing out you know if you you can hear a twig snap and and if you don't hear that happen you'll miss you know you miss the porcupine walking over to your right or you'll miss the deer or you'll, you'll miss the hawk that's flying overhead and, and for me nature itself is is uh is kind of its own reward so i have a really i've I've been having a really tough time associating music with that feeling um i think that the closest i could come is my uh sometimes band member and and just very good friend um ben cosgrove writes instrumental music inspired by landscape itself and i think that's that's kind of the closest um that i come is that kind of subtle um cascading instrumental music is is the only thing that defines comes close to even capturing that feeling of of what it truly means to be outside of modernity and outside of uh you know the domicile outside of wherever you live in the world itself because we you know we don't live we don't live in the world itself we live in these constructs that that uh you know we've made to be very comfortable, but it's, it's it's so alien to like what it actually means to exist in the the real world.
0: Griffin Sherry of Ghost of Paul Revere, their new album, Good at Losing Everything, is on all streaming services. For more, check out patreoncom Ghost of Paul Revere. I'm Charles Coplin. And this has been Songscapes, a production of Sustain Music and Nature. For more, check us out at sustainmusicandnature.org.